0: This evening we'll be looking particularly at Colossians chapter 2 verses 11 through 12. Colossians 2 verses 11 through 12. We'll be considering that we have been buried and raised with Him, with Christ Jesus. And I'm a little bit excited. It's it's not often uh, that I get to come to a passage in God's Word where I can be uh, unbridled, as it were, as a covenantal, reformed, paedo-baptist Presbyterian. Uh, It's not often that I get to find a passage in God's Word where I can proudly and passionately preach on God's intentions for covenantal baptism, and do it in a way that's exegetical, and do it in a way that is coming true from the text, and not just because it's a hobby horse of mine. Uh, You know, as Presbyterians, we like to preach on baptism. We like to preach on the sovereignty of and the holiness of God. And it's a blessing. It really is when we find a passage in God's Word simply as we're going verse by verse that does it exactly for us. And that's really what this passage is. And this passage really is a case for what we might call covenantal baptism. For the Reformed view, as it were, an understanding of baptism. I considered initially throwing this passage in with verses 13 through 15. And where we were going to look at all of that in one sermon, but as a good Reformed Paedo-Baptist Presbyterian, I simply couldn't do it. I couldn't let this passage go by without taking the time and, and giving us the opportunity to have an entire sermon dedicated to the Biblical Reformed Covenantal view on baptism. And so that's what we have this evening. Colossians two eleven through 12 We'll pray briefly one more time, and then we'll hear what God has for us in His Word. Let's pray. Almighty Father, God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and God of us, we come to you now in need. We come to you desperate for your mercy, desperate for your grace, hungry and thirsty for your word. Father, we pray that you would fill us up, that not a one of us would leave this place without having... Felt our desires, felt our longings, felt our hungerings for your holy word filled. Lord, we pray that you would grant us eyes to see, ears to hear, and that you would soften even the stoniest of hearts to be receptive to receive the word of God as it is preached. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Colossians chapter 2, 11 through 12. Brothers and sisters, I would remind you, this is God's sufficient word. It is our only standard of faith and life. Hear it. Now, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Amen. We find here that we may learn three particular lessons from this text on baptism. And trust me when I say I was tempted to go beyond those three lessons. I mean, once again, this is just, I don't know, I get nerded out about this. We don't always find passages like this. But we've got three lessons that we can take from baptism that truly come from this very passage. And I'll I'll try to not go off on the rabbit trails that I would love to go on. We'll see first the connection between circumcision and baptism. First, the connection between circumcision and baptism. Secondly, from that, we will see and learn the meaning of baptism. The meaning of baptism. And then third and finally, we will see here this evening, the subjects of baptism. The subjects of baptism. We see the connection between circumcision and baptism, the meaning of baptism, and third and finally, the subjects of baptism. And so look, we see first the connection between circumcision and baptism. Paul writes in his main two clauses of the passage, he says, In him you were circumcised. And then Paul, what does what Paul does, what Paul often does, and he, he goes off on a little rabbit trail of his own, but then he comes back to his second main clause. He says, In him you were circumcised. How? You might go, How how was I circumcised, Paul? When was I circumcised, Paul? In him you were circumcised, having been buried with him in baptism. See what Paul has done there? You have been circumcised, Christian, if you have been baptized. He links the two. He connects the two. Paul is saying, in contrast to the false teachers likely telling the Christians here, the the Colossian believers, that they needed to be circumcised to achieve this fullness. We've, We've spoken a lot on this idea of fullness. These Gnostics, these ascetics, these spiritualists were coming to them, much as any false teachers do even today, telling the believers, hey, you've got a great start, but there's some aspects you're missing. And one of those common aspects that we find in the New Testament that false teachers were berating the church with was they were saying, hey, it's great that you've been baptized. It's great that you've received Christ, but now receive Moses. Now receive circumcision. And so Paul is saying in contrast to them... That you don't need to be circumcised to achieve this fullness. Because Paul is saying in baptism you have already been circumcised. By being baptized. The New Testament sign of baptism therefore carries the same significance. And points to the same things that the Old Testament sign of circumcision did. Thus we find that baptism is viewed in God's word as what we might call a covenant sign. A covenant sign. What is a covenant sign? Well, we don't need to make it more complicated than it needs to be, right? A sign is that which points to something else, it's that which signifies something else, but that which is in and of itself not the thing signified. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, if you're driving up I 55 and you see that sign that says Jackson 100 miles, what is that sign doing? What is the purpose that that sign is serving? It's pointing you to Jackson. It's telling you, "Hey, Jackson's up ahead." But the sign is not Jackson, and you go obvious. We don't even have to say that. Exactly. When we were on our way to Florida this last week, we passed several signs of the Promised Land up ahead called Bucky's, and it, man, it gets me excited. It gets my kids even more excited when we see that happy beaver on that sign, and it'll say Bucky's. And I love this because with a love sign, it'll say, you know, love's 10 miles ahead. They don't push their luck. But with Bucky's, Bucky knows how good they are. Bucky's will have a sign that says, Bucky's, 340 miles ahead, don't stop, you can wait. Because it's worth the wait. And so when we we saw that sign, we got excited not because the sign was Bucky's, but because the sign was pointing to Bucky's. It was telling us what was up ahead, showing us, hey, you can wait, it's worth it. The snacks, the clean bathrooms, the smell of barbecue, this is what the sign is pointing to. A sign is that which points to something else. Don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. God knows that we are of weak faith, brothers and sisters. God knows that we're of weak faith. And thus, in His grace, He gives us signs. Physical, tangible, touchable reminders of His promises. So that we would be all the more inclined to trust in them. When I'm driving somewhere that I've never been... Even if my GPS tells me I'm on the right track. Even if my GPS says, you know, just stay on this road and you'll get there. It definitely, I can promise you, it sure does help my trust. It sure does help build my confidence when I see that hard in the ground metal sign that says the town I'm heading to is right up ahead. It helps me. It it encourages me. Sometimes I don't trust my GPS because the GPS has messed me up before. It confirms my trust. It's not that I don't trust the GPS right? Google does a great job. Siri does a great job. Waze does a great job. But I'm of weak faith. And it sure does help. It sure does help build my trust when that physical, tangible, touchable sign is planted there on the side of the road. And that's what signs do. Whether it be circumcision in the Old Covenant or baptism and the Lord's Supper in the New, they point us. They are physical, tangible reminders of His promises, God has been that good, that gracious to us, brothers and sisters, that He doesn't just give us the promise in His Word and and just hope that we believe it. He gives us tangible, touchable, physical signs to remind us and encourage us to trust in those promises. Circumcision was a covenant sign in the Old Testament. That's what it was. In Genesis chapter 17, we find that circumcision was given to Abraham. Abraham. It was given to Abraham as a sign and seal of the promises which God had made to him previously in Genesis chapters 12 and 15. And what were God's promises to Abraham? What were his promises to Abraham? Was it not to bless him with many offspring? And so why circumcision? Why circumcision? Maybe you've wondered this question before. Maybe you've been asked this question before. Well, consider this. If the promise was for children then the sign of circumcision sure is a pretty much guaranteed way to remind Abraham every single day to trust in that promise. Do you you catch my drift? It was a very good, a very practical reminder. He's promised you children, so here's a sign that you will have children and you ain't going to forget this one. It's funny, we laugh at it, especially in youth. Every time this word comes up, we get chuckles, right? But look at God's grace to give this tangible, this physical of a sign that Abraham could not but trust in the promise. Paul says here that if you have been circumcised, if you you have been baptized, then you have been circumcised. Thus, he is telling us that baptism is a sign and a seal of the promises that God has made to us, just like circumcision was. In the same way that circumcision served as a sign to assure and remind Abraham that God would fulfill His promises to him. So too now, baptism serves in the same function for us. We can think of it this way. Circumcision pointed forward to Christ's death and the benefits thereof. Baptism points back to Christ's death and the benefits thereof. But they both point to the same thing. They both do the same thing. They both serve the exact same purpose. Thus, Paul argues that they're closely linked. They're they're almost interchangeable. And this is one of the very reasons why Paul is so strongly opposed throughout his letters. Consider the book of Galatians. It's one of the reasons why Paul is so strongly opposed to the Judaizers. This group that, that was telling the Christians, It's not enough that you've been saved by faith. It's not enough that you have been baptized. You must now be circumcised. Why was Paul so opposed to this teaching? Because Paul is arguing that by faith, we have already been circumcised in Christ. Of which baptism is now the new covenant sign and seal. And so physical circumcision is no longer necessary. Physical circumcision served as a sign which pointed to inward circumcision. It has always served that purpose. It's that reason that we read in Romans chapter 2 as Paul turns his attention to the Jews. He tells them, You're not just Jews if you're one outwardly. But it's those who have been circumcised of the heart which are true Jews. This isn't New Testament revelation. It has always been this way. That is why even in the Old Testament we find over and over and over again God saying to His people, not all who are of Israel are Israel. Physical circumcision always served as a sign which pointed to the inward circumcision of the heart. Faith. So too now baptism... Does the same thing. This is not the only place in the New Testament that links circumcision and baptism. Consider Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 39. Here, the Apostle Peter famously preaches a sermon before the people, and he consciously uses the exact same formula in his preaching that the Lord himself had used previously. In his installation of the sign of circumcision in Genesis 17, it is verbatim the exact same phrasing. Verbatim the exact same words. And I guarantee you this, brothers and sisters, though we might be tempted to miss it, none of the Jews there missed it. Hear, Paul, hear Peter's words there in Acts 2:38 through 39 Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he uses this phrase, which is identical to what we find in Genesis 17. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off. Brothers and sisters, circumcision and baptism are closely interconnected. They both serve as signs of the covenant of grace. One in the old covenant administration, one in the new. That's the first thing we learn from this passage. But secondly, we also see We see here the meaning of baptism. The meaning of baptism. We commonly are told in our culture, I know I was growing up, that faith or that which we have done is what is emphasized in baptism. But that's not what we find here in this passage. But rather our union with Christ and God's work towards us. And look, I want to preface with this. Most of y'all know this, but just in case some don't, uh, I haven't been a Presbyterian that long. I, I've grown up my whole life fervently Southern Baptist. M- most of my friends are still fervently either Southern Baptist or Reformed Baptist. So, so, so all of this is said in love. Uh, this is definitely what we would call a family disagreement, right? Uh, we disagree with our Baptist brothers and sisters on this. Somebody is right. Somebody's wrong. I think I'm right. That's why I'm here in a Presbyterian church. But they do too. Someone's right, someone's wrong, but I promise you this, regardless of where you fall on baptism, we're going to be debating this uh, together, maybe now in this earth, in this life, but we'll be together in heaven. This is, this is a secondary issue, but it doesn't matter. It's worth talking about. And so I say this with love, but I say this with the same type of love and critique uh, that, that I'm going to, in the same way, you know, you can talk about your family, but nobody else can. Look, my whole family's Baptist, so, so take this with a grain of salt. Those who teach credo-baptism... Uh, The belief, the practice of only baptizing adults. uh, The practice of believers' baptism only. Teach that baptism is primarily a sign. It is primarily about our faith that we have placed in Christ. It's what we have done. But in this passage, the primary symbolism of baptism is to show us God's reaching out to us when we were helpless. It's God's uniting us to Christ. It's God's saving of us. Hear these phrases Paul uses in this passage once more. Made without hands. Buried with Him. Raised with Him. It's in the powerful working of God, Paul states. Faith is present for sure. We were raised up with Him through faith. Absolutely. But as we'll read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-10, even that faith was a gift of the sovereign God working in your life. Paul's main point in this passage is that baptism itself is a sign of our union with Christ. It's a sign of God's reaching out to us when we could not reach up to Him. Baptism then is primarily a sign not of what we have done, but of what God has done for us. The point of baptism is not what we have done. It is not our faith, but rather it is what God has done for you and for me. It is God who has brought us into the covenant community. It is He who has brought us into union with Christ. It is He who has cleansed us of our sins. These are the meanings of the sign of baptism. Consider what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Y'all are familiar with the story. A teacher called Nicodemus came and asked the Lord, but What must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? What must I do to be saved? Go back to the passage, and I promise you one thing you will not find. You will not find one time in that passage where Jesus answers his question. Not one time will you find Jesus telling him something he can do to be saved. What you do find is Jesus telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's a passive verb. It's something that has to happen to him. Something he has no control over. It's not something he could do. Our rebirth, our being born again is a work completely of God and His grace and His mercy and His doing and of His sovereign choice. And we see here in our passage in Colossians two, eleven through 12 that Paul links that rebirth with baptism. So it only makes sense that if our, if our regeneration, if our spiritual circumcision as it were had nothing to do with what we had done but rather everything to do with what God had done for us then wouldn't our baptism too, if that's what it points to? Baptism is a sign primarily of these three things. It is of our entrance into the covenant community, of our union with Christ, and of the cleansing of sins. But in all three of those, what we have done is never emphasized, but rather what God has done for us. And we'll look at each of those briefly. Baptism is a sign of entrance into the covenant community. In the same way that a uniform signifies that you are part of the team. Uh, Baptism as well serves as a sign of entrance into the covenant community. A.K.A. the church. It's the initiation rite, as it were. Calvin writes, Baptism is the initiatory sign by which we are admitted into the fellowship of the church. It is the sign of initiation. In the same way, when you join a, a, a gang or a club, you're, you're, you're jumped into that gang, so to speak, or if you want to join a frat in college, right, you have to go through that, that initiation, that hazing process. Thankfully, we don't have a hazing process, we have baptism. This is the initiation, right? This is how you join the church. Baptism is a sign of one's membership in the visible community of Christ. It's the marker which distinguishes those who are in the church and those who are outside the church in the exact same way that circumcision did. Circumcision served as the sign that marked those who were in Israel, those who were not in Israel. But baptism is also a sign of our union with Christ. As we saw this morning, we have been filled in Him. When Christ saves you, He He fills you with His Holy Spirit and brings you into union with Him. And this is signified in baptism. Baptism. In addition to our short passage at hand, we also see this in places such as Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, the basis of that hymn which we just sang. And Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 27. And we read in the latter. Paul writes, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Baptism thirdly and finally is also a sign of the cleansing of sins, that of cleansing, that of washing. This is actually, as we consider the entirety of God's Word, this is actually the primary meaning of baptism. When Christ saves you, He cleanses you. He cleanses you from your sin. He washes your transgressions away. He purifies your iniquities. He makes your scarlet, sin-stained self now white as snow. He washes you. Throughout the Scripture, salvation is painted with the imagery of cleansing and of washing. We don't have time this evening, but I'll give you the passages and the encouragement that you go home and and look at some of them yourself. Psalm 51, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 26, Titus 3, 5, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2, and 1 John 7, 1 John 1, 7 through 9. All of these passages are but a handful. Of what we find in God's Word that describes salvation with clear terminology of applying water to the body. Which is exactly what we find in baptism. To make that connection even clearer, one may look to the Old Testament's use of baptism. Did you know there was baptism in the Old Testament? Yes, indeed. And ritual washings in passages such as 2 Kings chapter 5, Exodus 30, and Ezekiel 36... When you consider these passages as a whole, one begins to understand why the disciples didn't have to ask Jesus what he meant by baptism. You ever wondered that? It seems like a pretty important thing. It's one of the keys to making disciples, right? Matthew 28. Go ye therefore into all the world, making disciples. How? First thing he says is baptizing them. Yet we don't find once in the New Testament. Peter says some pretty dumb things in the New Testament. He has a tendency of putting his foot in his mouth. And yet even Peter, we don't find him asking, what do you mean, Jesus? We don't find once anyone asking Jesus, what do you mean by baptism? Because they already knew. They all knew what baptism meant. Both because of the ritual washings that had come before and because of its clear, vivid connection with circumcision. No one had to ask because it was obvious. Throughout the scriptures, throughout God's word, both baptism and salvation are linked with cleansing and washing. As water applied to the body cleanses the outward person of all physical dirt and defilement, so the blood of Christ cleanses the inward soul of the spiritual dirt and defilement of sin. And so the two go hand in hand. Once again, let's not make it harder than it needs to be. How do you know what baptism signifies? Look at what's used. How could it signify anything else? Look at the element that baptism requires. Water. What does water do? It it cleans you. Good luck washing your hands without water. I wouldn't want to shake your hand after that. You need water. This is how we cleanse. This is how we wash. And so then, it's the one rabbit trail that we'll go off on for just a second even though our passage at hand doesn't directly delve into what we might call the mode of baptism. I believe it would be appropriate at this point, considering what we just talked about, about it symbolizing cleansing, to follow just one little rabbit trail for just one little moment. Seeing as we've already covered baptism's meaning and subject, what a crime it would be to not cover the last little dot meaning uh, needed, which is mode. It will suffice for us to say that baptism does not mean immersion. This is what I grew up being told. That when you read baptism, that literally every single time means immersion. But it doesn't mean that. Anyone with a basic rudimentary knowledge of Greek knows that's not what the word means. Baptizo literally translated means simply this, to cleanse with water. To cleanse with water. That's all it means. And this is why we as Presbyterians, along Along with literally every other denomination of Christians throughout church history, except for our Baptist brothers and sisters, see the mode, that is, how we apply it, as ultimately insignificant. It doesn't matter. Well, pastor, how can you say it doesn't matter? Because of all the teachings and all the texts we find in baptism, Jesus nor the disciples ever found it necessary to say how to do it. It simply means to cleanse with water. We see the mode as ultimately insignificant, though we prefer sprinkling or pouring. There are at least three reasons we find in God's Word why immersion is unnecessary. First, consider this, that the New Testament accounts of baptism never once indicate nor require immersion as the mode. You will not find it one time, and the few passages that are usually claimed uh, those river baptisms, like when the eunuch was baptized and they went down to the water, people will say, see, they went down into the water. Pastor, that must mean they were immersed. Except both the one doing the baptizing and the one being baptized, it said of both of them that they went down into the water. So unless you want to say that Philip was also rebaptized, the text can't be saying that. Secondly, as we consider the baptism administered at Pentecost in Acts 2.41... Do you really want to try to make the argument that over 3,000 people were fully immersed in one day? And usually we look at the Jordan River and we think of like a Mississippi River. Like 99.9% of the time, that river you can walk across in ankle-deep water. It's almost impossible to immerse someone in it. And third and finally, and I think the main one worth considering here. If, if the argument of our brothers and sisters on the other side of this are right, that baptizo always means immersion, then it would always mean immersion when we find it. If we can find one place in the New Testament where baptizo does not mean immersion, the argument is null and void. And we have exactly that in Mark chapter 7 verse 4. In Mark 7 4 we read this account that the Pharisees had a practice, quote, of washing cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. The word translated their wash in my ESV, is the word baptizo, to baptize. Do you really want to argue that they were taking their couches downstairs, out the door, down to the river, and immersing them every single time they sat down to eat? I don't think so. They were simply ritually cleansing them with water. Likely through sprinkling or pouring, which was a common form of ritual cleaning that we see throughout the Old Testament. And not only is immersion not necessary, but we actually find as we look to the picture throughout God's Word, this connection that Paul is making. Paul makes the connection, not me. Paul makes the connection between circumcision and baptism. Paul makes the connection between cleansing and baptism. Paul makes the connection between faith and salvation and renewal and baptism. Consider that the primary meaning, once again, of that word is cleansing and washing for the forgiveness of sins, which throughout the Old Testament was conveyed by sprinkling blood on the altar, not by immersing the altar in blood. Sprinkling and pouring is what you find every single time in the Old Testament when the word seeks to convey that cleansing is taking place. In fact, The only time in the Old Testament that we find immersion taking place is when it was a sign of God's wrath on the Egyptians, not as a sign of blessing and inclusion on his people. Water baptism signifies spiritual baptism, just as physical circumcision signified spiritual circumcision. It points us to Acts 1-5, where we read that believers were told, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And how are we baptized with the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters? As we read in places such as Acts 2.7, Acts 2.33, and Romans 5.5, are we immersed in the Holy Spirit? Or is He poured out among us? But here's the main point here. Baptism is a sign. It's a sign of our entrance into the covenant community, of our union with Christ, and of the cleansing of our sins. And in all of that, don't miss this, in all of that, the meaning has nothing to do with what you have done, but everything to do with what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. So we see in our passage that we are instructed on the connection between circumcision and baptism. Or we're instructed, secondly, on the meaning of baptism. And third and finally, we're instructed on the subjects of baptism. We're instructed on the subjects of baptism. And it really does so through what has already been conveyed in his first two points. If, as Paul has already made clear, baptism has a definite relationship with circumcision. If, as he has already made clear, they are connected the way Paul and the rest of the Scriptures relates them and connects them. That is that baptism is the new covenant equivalent of circumcision. And if baptism, just like circumcision, as Paul has already made clear, is primarily a sign of what God has done for us, not of what we have done for God, then the subjects of baptism, therefore, are the same as the subjects of circumcision. Namely, not only believers, but believers and their children. Now, once again, in all love, reminder, my family is Baptist. All of my friends are Baptist. I spend more time with them than I do Presbyterians. And we also love arguing about this over coffee. So this is is a brotherly, sisterly disagreement. But we can't just skip it. Our Baptist brothers and sisters will protest at this point and say, How can you baptize infants who are not able to exercise faith? How can you baptize infants who can't even understand what is happening to them? How can you baptize infants who don't have a choice in the matter? That's precisely the point. That is exactly the point. Praise be to God. You are exactly right they don't have a choice in the matter. You are exactly right. They can't outwardly exercise it. Romans 4 tells us that circumcision was a sign for Abraham of what? Of that righteousness which he had by faith. Yet you will note, in Genesis 17, God commanded that the sign be given not only to Abraham, but also to his children. We read both things in God's Word. Romans 4 circumcision is a sign of the righteousness which is had by faith. Genesis 17, Abraham, give that sign not only to yourself, but also to all your offspring. In Genesis 17, we find eight-day-old Isaac who could not remotely have known what was happening to him when he was circumcised. He could not have yet exercised outward objective faith in God. And yet God commanded Abraham to circumcise that boy. To give him the sign of inclusion into the covenant community. To mark him as different, set apart from others. Why? Because as we read there in Genesis 17, it is a sign, quote, of my having set my heart on you and your descendants. And so what God did through the circumcision of believers' children in the old covenant, is he's saying to them, as your descendants embrace me, They will look back on that circumcision and remember that I embraced them before they ever could embrace me. That I loved them before they could ever love me. That I had mercy and grace and steadfast affection for them before they could ever turn their affections upon me. This is the gospel. This is the message that Paul has for us in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins when God saved you. You weren't sick. You weren't struggling. You were a rotten corpse at the bottom of the ocean of your sin and depravity when God almightily, sovereignly reached His hand down and pulled you up by His grace and His grace alone. You and I, brothers and sisters, had nothing to do with it. And so why would the sign which points to it have anything to do with us? So too now in baptism, God reaches out and He sets a sign upon us so that when we grow. And when we embrace Christ personally through faith, we can look back and see that before we loved Him, He loved us. That when we were dead in sins, Paul writes in Romans 5, that's when He loved us. And so, here's the argument. Here's the logic. Here's the scripture for paedo-baptism, infant baptism, in a nutshell. I'm going to give this to you in five, hopefully simple, straightforward statements. This This is what I would argue is basic logic. First, and if anyone wants this, I've got it written in a manuscript. I will happily email it to you. First, in the old covenant, God included the children of believers in the covenant community. And he commanded that they too be given the sign of that covenant, which was circumcision. We find that in Genesis 17. Secondly, the old covenant and the new covenant are both parts of the overarching covenant of grace. We find that as we read in Romans 11 that we as Gentile believers that we're not a new olive tree but rather we have been engrafted into the olive tree which already stands. We are one community. One covenant. Thirdly, baptism is the new covenant equivalent of circumcision. They're the same thing. They both function as a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Romans 4 Colossians chapter 2 where we are this evening. Fourth, We find nowhere, nowhere does God take children out of the covenant community. We do not find any one place in His Word where He now says, I changed my mind, you should no longer receive the covenant sign. In fact, we actually see much the opposite as we look to the baptism accounts of the New Testament. Consider Peter's statement once again that the promise is not just to you, but to you and your children. Consider the household baptisms of the New Testament where we find that a father or a mother would believe and repent, yet the whole household would be baptized that day. Consider 1 Corinthians 7.14 where we are told in clear, irrefutable language that the children of believers are called holy. They are set apart. They are different than the children of the world. And consider Luke 18, 15 through 16, where Christ himself pronounces blessing upon the little children. So fifth and finally, therefore, children of believers should be baptized. We don't have to find God repeating himself. How often do I find myself already to my two and a half year old, whom I love? How often already do I find myself saying, Liam, stop making me repeat myself, man. I've already said it like 14 times this morning. Please stop punching your little brother in the face. I shouldn't have to say it twice. I already said it once. Your mom's already spanked you. Like, like I'm already about to snap. I've already had to walk out of the room a couple times and take a deep breath and pray to the Lord for some patience. Stop making me repeat myself. And I'm sure as other parents in the room can attest, that probably won't end anytime soon. I probably just need to get used to repeating myself. But the Lord should not have to repeat Himself. Has He said it once? That should be the end of the matter. The Lord made abundantly clear in His Word over and over and over again from Genesis 15 and onward. That it is not just for believers, but the sign is for believers and their children. He told Abraham to give that covenant sign of faith and inclusion to his children as well. And then we get to the New Testament. And we find this New Testament rite of baptism. And not once do we find anyone saying, Jesus, what do you mean by that? Jesus, what is that? We find the same language surrounding that New Covenant rite of baptism verbatim as we find the Old Covenant rite of circumcision. And we find example after example, language after language, that nothing has changed. It is for God's people, believers, and their children. This is the case for covenantal baptism, for what we might call the Reformed view on baptism. Paul has shown us, one, the connection between circumcision and baptism. Secondly, the meaning of baptism. And third and finally, the subject to baptism. We've seen here this evening that circumcision and baptism are undeniably intrinsically linked. Both circumcision and baptism serve as equivalent signs in the covenant of grace. Both of them point to what God has done for us. Both of them point to the promises God has made to us. Both of them. Both of them. Baptism serving much like circumcision as a sign of entrance into the covenant community. And seeing as baptism is the new covenant counterpart to circumcision. And seeing as we find nowhere where God has removed children from that covenant community. Seeing as we find nowhere where he states that they should no longer receive that sign. The subjects remain the same. Believers and their children. Believers and their children. Let's pray. Almighty Father and gracious God, we thank You for Your Word. It is sufficient. It is good. It is holy. It is blameless. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is pure. It is useful for training up the man in righteousness so that he may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray that that's what You would do to us now through it. We pray it in Christ's name, for His glory and for the good of His church. Amen.